Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now, this evening is going to be a little different because what I'm going to do is take this evening and really set it up for Thursday evening. And I'm doing that because I have now received a number of questions on purgatory. You know, it's interesting. I, I said when we started our a new programming for Thursday, special topic Thursday, subject matter that was going to be tailored to your questions, that the questions didn't have to be exclusively apologetic. They can get into any number of things. Well, it turns out that you have some burning questions as it relates to apologetics, and that is fine. We are certainly hitting those more classic apologetic questions. This evening is going to be about purgatory. Now, I'm combining it with our study on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, because we are in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, and on through really verse 15, is that classic biblical passage that deals with purgatory. So I thought it was fitting to do that, and uh, my alternative reason is that I'm away this Thursday. So if you're hearing this on Thursday, you may have heard this on Monday, and I would just encourage you to listen again that you just might soak even more into our subject matter. So our question, and I should say questions, how are we to understand purgatory, and what can we do for those in purgatory? So it's kind of a 1A, 1B this evening, and we will certainly spend uh, some due time in 1B. What can we do for those in purgatory? As it relates to what the Catholic Church teaches on purgatory, if you were to turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we read in paragraph 1030 that all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy in heaven. Paragraph 1031 continues, The Church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The Church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the Church, by reference to certain texts of Scripture, we'll speak to those here in a bit, speaks of a cleansing fire. Now, I like what uh, St. Gregory the Great has to say here on purgatory. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. So as it relates to this question of, you know, whether or not we can do anything for a person already dead, I know many of you out there would say, no, of course, because our disposition at death gives only two possibilities, heaven or hell. If a person's going to heaven, then the strife is over, and that's that. For those who are going to hell, there's nothing we can do to change their course. Their lifetime was that trial period, and it's over. 
The traditional Christian view is indeed binary. At death, our souls are bound heavenward or bound for hell. But as Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 reminds us, since nothing unclean shall enter heaven, we need first to be what? Purified. From reflection on Scripture, the church has always taught that there is an intermediate state for those who are bound for heaven. And this is what, as the Catechism was just reflecting upon, is the state of purification. And tradition calls this purgatory. Now, where do we find this in the Bible? It is implied in many places. Jesus himself assumes the doctrine when in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, he says, Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. There must be a state then in which people are forgiven in the age to come, right? Again, tradition calls that state purgatory. In another place, Jesus is speaking of God's judgment. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 25 to 26, we read of how Jesus speaks of God's judgment. He says this, Make friends quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not get out till you have paid the last penny. Again, this implies a state in the afterlife in which people pay, right? Pay their penitential debt to God, that payment that is purification. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets discuss judgment in these terms. The prophet Malachi employed the image that will recur in the New Testament. The final purification of the faithful, he says, is like a refiner's fire. Go to the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Rich. St. Paul, of course, too speaks of this purifying fire. And this, of course, is what? But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. And pay close attention, my friends, to what Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and another man is building upon it. Let each man take care how he builds upon it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will become manifest. For the day, day capitalized, right, will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but saved only as through fire. So my friends, here you have 
a passage that is read within the context of what? Judgment Day. Again, day capitalized, the day, Judgment Day. And you have Paul talking about salvation, but only as through fire. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Some of you can begin to imagine why this passage is so important to the doctrine of purgatory. Once again, that saving fire is what Catholics call purgatory. What's more, the book of Revelation makes a distinction between the martyrs who are resurrected immediately and rest of the dead who did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. So we see that some were judged worthy of heaven, but others weren't ready yet for their inevitable resurrection to glory. And again, their state of purification here is purgatory. My friends, there is an intermediate state between earth and heaven. The Israelites called it Sheol, the abode of the dead. And the Jews of Jesus' time fervently believed that the souls of God's faithful could be what? What do we read in Psalm chapter 86, verse 13? Delivered from the depths of Sheol. Pious Jews, then as now, considered it an obligation to raise prayers for the dead, for their deceased family members. They could even offer a sacrifice for the sake of the faithfully departed. Do we not do this, right? For those of you who are Catholics out there and attend Mass, do we not do this every Mass? We should consider 2 Maccabees here, chapter 12, verses 39 to 45. Judas Maccabeus and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen and to bring them back to lie with their kinsmen in the sepulchres of their fathers. Then under the tunic of every one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all that this was why these men had fallen. So they all blessed the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals the things that are hidden. And they turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. And the noble Judas took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. So here you have the soldiers offering sacrifice for their fallen comrades. They offered essentially, my friends, a sin offering to atone for the sins of the dead sins that the survivors had not themselves committed. And when they did this, they acted in a, what did the verses say? Holy, pious, and honorable way. Now, I know that many of you do not consider the account of the Maccabean revolt to be part of the canonical scriptures, as we Catholics do. But even if you do not accept First and Second Maccabees as scripture, you should find it at the very least a valuable historical witness 
a glimpse, if you will, of the beliefs of Jews in Jesus's time. The beliefs implied in Jesus's own statements about an intermediate state in the afterlife. This is the prison of spirits where, according to St. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, Jesus first went to preach the good news, huh? The Jews called it Sheol. The Greek New Testament calls it what? Hades. Now, Hades is distinct from Gehenna, the place of hellfire. And what the New Testament calls Hades, Catholics call purgatory. The early Christians knew that if the Old Testament sacrifices had been efficacious on behalf of the dead, our Lord's sacrifice would be all the more powerful, right? This is why they commonly offered graveside masses on the third day after Christian burial. The third day, of course, as a sign of Easter hope. In the great St. Augustine's autobiography, The Confessions, written in the fourth century, St. Augustine recalls how his own mother's dying request was that he should remember her when he offered the Mass. In response to the second part of that question, you know, what can we do for those souls in purgatory? Well, my friends, pray. We can pray. Certainly Mass is the highest form of prayer. But what does it mean to pray? Prayer changes things. Sometimes in obvious ways, more often in in subtle and even paradoxical ways. Down deep, I think we all recognize the value of prayer, even if we don't experience its immediate effects. This is why Jesus taught us to pray always, and in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, to never lose heart. And why St. Paul echoed this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, to pray without ceasing. Again, when we talk about prayer, we've talked about this a lot here on Seeds of Truth. Prayer, simply defined, is conversation with God. Conversation with God. To unceasingly talk with God. To talk with God, yes, that you might give glory to Him in all that you do, but also to unceasingly intercede on behalf of our beloved alive and deceased. I often wonder, perhaps one of the greatest joys of heaven. We'll be seeing how much of a difference our prayers made. Have you ever thought about that? How much difference our prayer makes? Even the distracted and very perfunctory prayer, huh? Perhaps our simple utterance at the end of a decade of the rosary to save us from the fires of hell and lead all souls to heaven will reach the heart of one lost soul, prompting him to answer the gentle call of God to return to his most sacred heart. Imagine that in heaven that a sinner might come up to you and say something like, Friend, though we never met, your prayer reached me and God applied his power to me. You ever think about that? It's really fascinating to just think about that. Imagine the joy of many such meetings in heaven. Imagine two whom you might joyfully thank for their prayers. People you know and maybe people you don't know. But they prayed, and the power of their prayers reached God, and God saved you. We have talked about this very subject matter within the context of the last spiritual work of mercy to pray for the living and the dead. Indeed, it is a great and wonderful work of mercy to intercede on behalf of one another. And remember, we've already addressed the question of 1 Timothy 2.5. 
that passage that speaks to there is only one mediator between God and men, and, and that is the man Jesus Christ. Remember that 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 4 were all about Paul urging Timothy and the people of God to pray. How our prayer is only as good as Christ living within us because we share in the one mediation of Christ, just as we are baptized into the one life of Christ. So what is the value of one prayer, you may ask? Well, what does James chapter 5, verse 16 say? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its effects. One of my favorite New Testament passages. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its effects. Prayer averts wars. Prayer brings healing. My dear friends, prayer causes conversion. Prayer bestows peace and serenity. Its values can never be told. Above all else, my dear friends, prayer saves. So we intercede. No praying for the dead has probably suffered in recent decades. So often after a loved one dies, there are those often immediate declarations that the deceased are in heaven, or maybe we say in a better place. But Scripture doesn't say that we go right to heaven when we die. No. Indeed, there is a brief stopover at the judgment seat of Christ, and this is an important point. But what is the judgment in question for those who lived faithful lives? I think that's a very, very important question because I think that's part of the question that is underpinning the other two questions about what is purgatory and what can we do for those souls in purgatory? You might be asking, what is the judgment in question for those who live faithful lives? The judgment is not merely about the ultimate destination of heaven or hell. The judgment in question would seem to be, is my work in you complete? Indeed, the Lord has made all of us a promise, my friends. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. What a beautiful promise. And yet most of us know that we are not in such a state now, such a state of grace, such a state of perfection, we should say. If we were to die today, it is clear that more work would still be required. And thus, when we send our faithful loved ones to judgment, though we send them with hope, we are aware that finishing work may be necessary. Purgation, purification are necessary for entering heaven, of which Scripture says, Revelation 21, verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it. How consoling and merciful our prayers must seem to our beloved who have died. How prayers must seem like a gentle wind that speeds them along onward and upward toward heaven. These prayers, as I've already noted, include first and foremost the Mass. The sacrifice of the Mass is the most powerful prayer of mediation on behalf of the dead. Recall what Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. One of those few commands he gave, yes, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love neighbor as yourself, but also do this. Be sacramental in your identity. 
Be Eucharistic in your identity. And when you are, understand that all that you are should be offered to God. How important is this? In many ways, this brings us back to the importance of who we are as mediators. God willed that we should not only work out our own salvation. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, how we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, but also bear one another's burdens as we share in Christ's redemptive sacrifice. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we can and should intercede for one another, my friends, for the remission of one another's sins. What does 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 say? If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. Brothers and sisters, we are co-workers. Did we not talk about that last week? For we are God's co-workers, fellow workers in the building up of the kingdom of God. So you are made to see the importance of how we are called to offer ourselves to God as a sharing in the one redemptive sacrifice of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 reads, In my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Did you hear what Paul just said? In my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. We know that there wasn't anything lacking specifically to Christ's sacrifice. What is Paul talking about? Well, our call to share in that one sacrifice and how there's this redemptive power when we offer our sacrifices, our trials to God. And reflecting upon this, I turned my attention to St. John Paul II and his very important letter on human suffering. Consider what St. John Paul II says here. People react to suffering in different ways, but in general, it can be said that almost always the individual enters suffering with a typically human protest and with the question, why? Isn't that so true? <laughs> Isn't that so true? John Paul II continues. He asks the meaning of his suffering and seeks an answer to this question on the human level. Certainly, he often puts this question to God and to Christ. Furthermore, he cannot help noticing that the one to whom he puts the question is himself suffering and wishes to answer him from the cross, from the heart of his own suffering. Nevertheless, it often takes time, even a long time, for this answer to begin to be interiorly perceived. For Christ does not answer directly, and he does not answer in the abstract this human questioning about the meaning of suffering. Man hears Christ's saving answer as he himself gradually becomes a share in the sufferings of Christ. The answer which comes through this sharing by way of the interior encounter with the Master, I love that, is in itself something more than the mere abstract answer to the question about the meaning of suffering. For it is above all a call, a vocation. Christ does not explain in the abstract the reasons for suffering, but before all else he says, follow me. 
Come. I love that. Love that. He continues, take part through your suffering in this work of saving the world, a salvation achieved through my suffering, through my cross. Gradually, as the individuals take up his cross, spiritually uniting himself to the cross of Christ, the salvific meaning of suffering is revealed before him. He does not discover this meaning at his own human level, but at the level of the suffering of Christ. At the same time, however, from this level of Christ, the salvific meaning of suffering descends to man's level and becomes, in a sense, the individual's personal response. It is then that man finds in his suffering interior peace and even spiritual joy, a source of joy that is found in the overcoming of the sense of the uselessness of suffering. Amen to that. So there, St. John Paul II wishes to highlight the importance of understanding how our suffering can be used for something so much greater than we could ever imagine. No eye is seen, no ear is heard, nor can we ever imagine the power behind our own suffering. What does Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and following say? That our very lives are to be a spiritual worship a holy and acceptable, what? Offering unto God, offering unto God. And my friends, God uses such offering to free those who still might be suffering in purgatory, that state of purification. It was St. Thomas who once said that the angels are envious of humans. Why? Because they possess flesh. And angels understand the redemptive power when man offers up his flesh to God. When man offers up all of his weakness in his flesh to God. Because of the greatness of God's power when he lives in our weakness. Does not Paul say, boast in your weakness? Boast in your capacity to give all that you have to God. And when you are suffering, especially that which is excruciating, remember that the word excruciating, when you translate the Latin excruces, literally means from the cross. Our excruciating pain is intended to have redemptive value as it comes from the cross. Our pain, our suffering is our very cross of which we give to God. So you ask what can be done for those who might be suffering in purgatory, pray, have masses said for your loved ones, and understand the importance and the power of intercession that Paul, on more than one occasion, urges the faithful Christians to offer up prayers of intercession, supplication, prayers of offering, that the body of Christ may indeed share in the heavenly glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. I just want to continue to thank all of you for taking time out of your busy schedules to spend it with me as we reflect into just not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, but more specifically, especially this evening, all of those very important doctrines which affect us and our loved ones. All right, we close. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.